Uh, let's ask God with his word, to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, as we talk about the work of the Spirit uh, in our lives and in our congregation and how uh, we live and relate in light of that, uh, we pray uh, that by your Spirit uh, I would speak your words truthfully and clearly and we would understand, we'd be convicted of the truth of your word, and we would be guided uh, in applying it to our own lives uh, so that we can live together as your people and show to the world the goodness of that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as a child, uh, did you have to go to tedious large family gatherings where there seemed countless aunts and uncles and their families who you really didn't know and with whom you had very little in common? Uh, of course, when you got there with any luck, there might be one or two cousins with whom you hit it off and then you could play with them and ignore the rest. But if they weren't there, well, it could be kind of painful. Uh, and even though such gatherings are often worse in anticipation than reality, if you're like me, before you're asking, do I have to go? When you're there, you're saying, can we go home now? And as soon as you've got some independence, you'll be organising alternate activities for yourself. Now, perhaps that wasn't your experience. Perhaps you had a wonderful family and look forward to catching up every time. But the idea of compulsory relating, having to go and meet people you don't particularly want to meet and with whom you have little in common, and then having to be nice to them, doesn't naturally sit comfortably with many of us. Yet that's what seems to be involved in being in a church, isn't it? Compulsory, obligatory relationships with people you haven't chosen. The reading about the church as a body, which you heard, seems to make that clear. The church involves obligatory, interdependent relationships with people different from you, people you didn't choose, relationships from which you can't opt out with people you can't exclude. But before we look at the passage to see if that is what it is actually saying about our relationships with each other in our differences, all our differences, not just differences in gifts, although that's the immediate context, before we look at the passage, let's pause and think about why we might find and feel what Paul says here unwelcome, even threatening. And it's not just a matter of personality, of whether you're introverted or extroverted. It actually has to do with our times and our culture. You see, we're living post-COVID. Some of us have had repeated sickness and many of us are still a little tired. It's easy for us to become anxious about whether we'll have the energy to do the things we need to do and so wary of commitment. And we're also coming out of this time when we really didn't have to deal in person with a lot of people. We're confined to a small circle of people we knew well. Now, some of us hated it, but not all of us. And we're recognising, aren't we, the amount of energy it takes to include more people in our lives. And so the idea that you'd be obliged to spend your precious energy and time on relationships you don't choose is not a welcome idea. 
And that's on top of cultural forces that make being involved with others in church, others who are different from you, who you might not find rewarding or energising, an alien idea. You see, we're an individualistic society and are encouraged to believe that life is found in pursuing what is best for yourself, fulfilling your own dreams and passions, expressing who you really are, what you do, you're told, you do for you. And this focus on self, which is the air we breathe, has turned us into consumers of experiences where the test of the value of the experience is how it makes you feel whether it makes you feel good, especially good about yourself. As consumers, we're always being wooed, persuaded to choose this or that product by being flattered or having our desires appealed to, as if satisfying our wants is the most important thing in the universe. That's what we hear. And because life is about expressing yourself by your choices, we prioritise authenticity. For something to be genuine, a genuine expression of who you are, you should only be doing what you really want to do. And it feels inauthentic, doesn't it, to have to relate to people you haven't chosen to relate to. You see, the odds are stacked against us embracing obligatory relationships as a good. Oh, most of us know we might have to do that at work, But we feel we shouldn't have to do that in our private lives. The private and the personal is where we can be our authentic selves. Here, our choice, our preferences should rule and that just compounds the problem for church. For our society's relegated church belief to the realm of the private and personal, the area where we believe personal choice reigns supreme. See, our time and culture has set us up to be resistant to, prejudiced against what Paul teaches here about the church, the congregation as the body of Christ, to even feel perhaps that there's a burden imposition on our time and a restriction on our freedom. Even if our doctrine assents to what we read here, we're actually predisposed to discount it in practice, to keep it as an ideal not a lived reality. But tonight, I, despite that, I want to show you from God's word that if you are a believer, you do have a relationship with other believers that is obligatory. You have a role in our common life just by being a believer. And I want to show you that this is good and should be welcomed because it is for your good the good of your fellow believers with whom you are commanded to love and, yes, for the good of our world in its witness to the goodness of God's way. I want to show you these things so that you'll be encouraged, even in tiredness, to keep on relating to each other as we are members of Christ's body. For just as the body, writes Paul, is one and has many parts and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptised by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, when we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. Having introduced uh, in the previous verses the idea of differences amongst believers in the discussion of the diversity of gifts, 
Paul now gives us a way of thinking about how we relate in those differences and other differences by introducing the analogy of the human body. And it's an apt analogy. For in Christ, though we are many and different from each other in many ways, we are one. Just as in the human body there are many parts, liver, spleens, hands, feet, eyes, ears, many parts but one body. But what's created this unity in our differences? And why is it a non-negotiable reality and not just a helpful idea? To answer that, Paul directs their and our attention to what happens when we believe in the Lord Jesus. Verse 13, for we were all baptised in one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all given one spirit to drink. We are one in our diversity because the Lord Jesus baptises us in his spirit into one body, which verse 27 is his body. You see, our life as believers has a common origin, a common location, and is sustained from a common source. In speaking of baptism in or with the Spirit, Paul is talking of something that happens to every believer and something that happens to each believer at the beginning of our Christian life. Baptism in the Spirit is a phrase that has its origin in John the Baptist's prophecy where he compares what Jesus will do to what he, John, has been doing. I baptise you with water, he says, for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. As baptising with water was characteristic of John's ministry, So, says John, baptism with the Spirit will be characteristic of Jesus' ministry and an infinitely greater work. You see, John's baptism was something done on the outside, a washing of water, a sign of forgiveness and inclusion in the people of God through repentance and faith in anticipation of the one to come. But Jesus does a work on the inside. Jesus gives the reality. By baptism with the Spirit, Jesus incorporates us into the saved people of God who have new hearts, a new birth, a new hearts and new birth by the work of the Spirit Christ gives in us. And this baptism with the Spirit is the beginning experience of all believers. You see, there are six other uses of the Greek phrase translated as in or by the Spirit in the New Testament. Four, and they're in the notes, four are in the gospel record of John the Baptist's prophecy about Jesus at the start of every gospel, the prophecy you've heard. The other two are in the book of Acts, recalling John the Baptist's prophecy. And there's Acts 1, but also Acts 11. This is Peter speaking of the Spirit coming upon Cornelius as Cornelius believed the gospel Peter was preaching. As I began to speak, he says, the Holy Spirit came down on him just as on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. See, Peter's making it clear that the apostles regard what happened to Cornelius both as the fulfilment of John's prophecy 
and as the beginning experience, just as on us at the beginning. Baptism with the Spirit is what Jesus was prophesied to do and which he now does for all who repent and believe the gospel beginning at Pentecost. And it is this which makes us his. You cannot be a Christian without the Spirit of Christ. And baptism with the Spirit unites us. We are baptised into the Spirit, in the Spirit, into one body. The work of the Spirit is to unite us, you see, spiritually with the Lord Jesus. Paul's already spoken about that in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And that union with Christ means that every believer baptised in the spirit is in the one body. This is our location. We live out our lives in Christ, incorporated into the people of God by being joined to Christ, coming to share his life as we are united with him. And again, this is an all and every believer thing. You cannot be a Christian without being in Christ in one body. And so it's a travesty to teach uh, baptism of the Spirit as some kind of second experience that divides. Believers may and do have many experiences of the Spirit, but there is only one baptism of the Spirit and it is for all Jesus' people. And our common life is sustained from the one source, the Spirit. Just as the people of Israel, 1 Corinthians 10, were sustained by drinking the water from the rock, so our lives in our pilgrimage are sustained by the one Spirit. We're all given the one Spirit to drink. You see, the Spirit is the source of our ongoing life as believers in union with Christ. So verse 13 speaks of our reality as believers, whatever our background. Christ baptising us with his spirit creates a unity amongst believers that's just part of, inseparable from being a believer. We are related to each other. We share a common life in our differences. Just as you cannot be a believer without the new birth of the spirit, without being in Christ, without being sustained in life by our spiritual union with Christ, so you can't be a believer without, if you're able, without being a part of the body of Christ. And Paul makes it clear in verse 27 that when he's speaking of the body, he is speaking of the local congregation. An isolated Christian, a Christian who chooses to separate himself from all other believers is really a contradiction. Being saved by Christ, given new life in Christ, creates a relationship with other believers, which is one of diversity in unity and where just as in the body, the unity is experienced and sustained by that diversity. And Paul reminds us here that this unity is created in the face of differences much greater than differences in gifts whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, he says. Now those words speak of deep and enduring social divisions in the ancient world. But Paul's starting point is that they've been overcome in Christ's work of baptising his people with his spirit to make us one body, overcome by being incorporated into Christ 
by faith. But sometimes, as appears to be the case in Corinth, differences in gifts can be used however subtly to maintain and express those deeper social differences. Differences at Corinth in people's wealth, status, public honour that have actually, as we've seen, affected every part of the Corinthian life, their attitude towards the apostles, their use of knowledge, their behaviour at the Lord's Supper, all affected by those differences. And that's why in applying the body analogy, Paul spoke, as you heard in verses 22 to 23, of those parts who are weaker, less honourable, unrespectable. He's referencing those deeper differences and telling us how where those differences exist, being one body in Christ determines how we're to relate to each other. And that's important because our differences also extend beyond the gifts we have to differences in wealth, education, race, gender, age. So we need to see that letting the body talk will also help us, will also teach us how to live with each other in the light of all our differences, not just differences in gifts. In fact, when we let the body talk, we'll see that gifts are given to promote and express our unity, not to divide what Christ has united or to exclude those he has joined together. But before we look at the way Paul applies the analogy between the human body, which is one, though made up of many parts, and the Christian congregation and community, which is one in Christ, though made up of many different members, different parts, let's pause to think of the great good we receive in being united with each other, to recognise the great privilege of being in the body. See, believers in the gospel of Jesus are in his body because the Lord Jesus has given us his spirit. Now think of the wonder of that. This is the spirit of God, the spirit of life, the giver of a new life that starts now with new hearts freed from bondage to rebellion against God, freed to love God. A new life that will continue into the new heaven and earth as we are raised in what Paul will call in chapter 15, Spiritual bodies, bodies animated by the Spirit of God. The Spirit in our lives not only gives us hope, it's the assurance of that hope, hope of eternal life. Just as the Spirit crying, Abba, Father, in our hearts, is the assurance now of present relationship with the Father, the assurance of peace with God, the Spirit who is the sustainer of our lives as followers of Jesus. Now, this is a wonderful reality, and it is true of no one else. Only believers in Jesus have the Spirit, which is why belonging to Christ's body, his church, is different from belonging to a mere human voluntary association. It is a given of the new Spirit-given life, just as it is an expression of that new life. And belonging to the body also speaks of our security because Christ, Ephesians 5, cares for his body. He loves and cherishes it just as belonging to the body speaks of our belonging to the new covenant people of God, those who will enter the new Jerusalem, their eternal home. These are our privileges through being baptised with the Spirit. 
And these privileges are so undeserved. For the Spirit comes to us only by grace. The free gift of Christ who has fitted us to receive the Spirit through his death. See, your participation in the life of the body of Christ, which brings with it connection and relationship with others you haven't chosen, others perhaps so different from you, is the outworking of this extraordinary privilege. It's the consequence of a gift given in love. It's a cause of thankfulness. But let's hear what the body says to us about the way we engage with each other in the body of Christ. Paul's application of the analogy of the body to the life of the Corinthians and to us. If a foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it's not for that reason any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it's not for that reason any less part of the body. So firstly, says Paul, being in the body, you can't withdraw because you or your gift are not like some other believer with a seemingly more valued gift or function. Being in the body with whatever gift you have didn't depend on you in the first place. You didn't join yourself to the body. Christ did. Believing in Jesus, you are part of the body. However, you value your gift. And remember, verse 17, difference, diversity, is an absolutely absolute necessity for the body's existence and working. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And that difference, verse 18, depends on God. But as it is, God's arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. You see, God's the creator of our human bodies, what parts are in it and how they're arranged, their relationship to each other. And God is the creator of our congregational body, just as he wanted. He made you part of the body. He gave you the gift you have. He knows what's needed. And verse 19, why should you think we should all be the same? Sorry. If they were all the same, where would the body be? Why should you think they should all be the same or that we can do without any part that God has given? You see, that kind of unity, uniformity, that sameness created by those who feel different from the valued opting out, absenting themselves, actually destroys the body. So I don't know how you feel about your gift or about your contribution to congregational life, whether you're down on yourself for not being something you're not or feeling yourself unnecessary, but you have to hear in God's ordering of the body, the body to be the body needs you and it needs you to use the gift you have. And secondly, says St Paul, just as you can't withdraw, so you can't exclude those who are different from you. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, Paul's application here does conjure up some quite amusing images, doesn't it? I mean, where would an eye be without a hand to catch the cricket ball coming straight towards it, or in my case, to put the glasses on the nose that wouldn't be there if I was all eye? Or how would the head get to the bookshelf for some intellectual stimulation if there were no feet? We need each other. 
In fact, writes St Paul, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. Now, we can't be sure which parts of the physical body Paul and his audience thought weaker, but we can make the point in our own way, can't we? It's obvious, isn't it? Think of the gut, your gut. It's incapable of fine speech or deep thought. It probably will never do anything you want to be known for, not get a showing in your selfies. In fact, for many of us, our guts can be bothersome, keeping you awake at night when you've eaten too much, giving you pains when you're anxious, a source of embarrassment, potentially. But try living without it. The body needs all its parts. We don't have authority to say we can do without any part, exclude any as unnecessary, and we're likely to be poor judges of that. But God knows what's necessary. He's organised the body. And the body can teach us about how to relate to those we think are less valuable or even a bit embarrassing. On the contrary, writes Paul, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable and those parts of the body that we consider less honourable, we clothe these with greater honour and our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts don't need. It's always bad when you've got to explain euphemisms, but uh, most think that Paul, when he's speaking of unrespectable parts, is speaking of our genitalia and almost universally... They receive more thoughtful treatment, don't they? That's why we can sit and relate without awkwardness and embarrassment tonight. I mean, we don't think we can ignore their presence or just leave them behind. We give thought to our treatment of them to make them presentable, respectable, so they stay part of us, are retained in the body. But the terms Paul is using here, weaker, less honourable, unpresentable, are already inviting the Corinthians to apply what Paul is saying to their own common life and not just in relation to their favouring some gifts like tongues over others. You see, these terms, as I've said, reflect a society divided along power, status and wealth lines. If you're reading 1 Corinthians, already in 1 Corinthians, you would have read that, well, some of them were reckoned weaker and less worthy. (laughs) Listen to what Paul says. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He's chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What's viewed as nothing. You see, in society's view, many of the believers were thought foolish, weak, insignificant, despised. Those you don't want to associate with, could do without. So Paul's saying to the Corinthians and especially to the privileged and powerful who had been taught to look down on such people, to reckon that they could do without them, he's saying to them that they should recognise the weak and insignificant believers as indispensable. How? Oh, it's not just in function, in the gifts they may or may not have been given. See, the weak are always indispensable. They're indispensable because they show the reality of God's grace in saving, that it does not have to do with human achievement or wealth. They're indispensable because they best convey the purpose of God to humble human pride in saving. 
The weak testify to the truth of the gospel of the cross, that God and God alone saves his way by what the world reckons as foolishness and weakness. The weak testify that God's weakness is stronger than men, his foolishness wiser than man's wisdom. You see, the weak in our midst, those reckoned weak, foolish, insignificant by the world, keep the gospel as the foundation of congregational life and testifying to its reality in their gathering at the heart of the congregation's presence in the world. And that's pretty core, isn't it, for any congregation. The weak are indispensable. And their welcome presence shows that we value each other for Christ's sake, as those 1 Corinthians 8, again talking about the weak, as those for whom Christ died. That is, that we're a community ruled by Christ's word, shaped by Christ's salvation. The weak are indispensable, necessary. Oh yeah, and we know that in Corinth, some were not only reckoned as weak, but also reckoned less honourable, less worthy of respect. And this might surprise you, but in this letter, it's actually the apostles. We thought, how good to have the apostle Paul, you know, wouldn't that be great? Right? No, it's actually the apostles who have been reckoned less honourable. Listen to Paul as he's describing the contrast between how the Corinthians, especially the privileged, think of themselves and how the apostles appear. <laughs> We're fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonoured. You know, we are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, labour, working with our hands. Oh, even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. You see, the apostle and his band did not meet any of the criteria for being amongst the respectable. They were landless, poor, working with their hands, on the outer socially, even perhaps on the other side of the law. They were looked down on by the powerful and wealthy. Yet God had, in arranging the body, given those who were dishonoured even greater honour, the honour of being servants and messengers of Christ, of being heralds of his good news. And all this is God's arrangement by God's democracy. Design as Paul repeatedly reminds us of. Oh, it's the Spirit who distributes to each person his wills. It's God who arranges each one of the parts in the body as just as he wanted. Oh, God has put the body together. God has appointed these in the church. You see, who is in the church, including if you're in the church with whatever background, that's God's choice. Who has what gift, whether you have one you value or not, that's actually been God's decision. How those gifts relate to each other, that's God's arrangement. The body's composition and arrangement is all of God. So process that. Discontent with your gift or you're being committed to other believers? Well, that's actually discontent with God. Thinking you could do without someone, have no need of them, that's thinking you know better than God. Looking down on someone embarrassed by their presence in the congregation, that's actually despising God's arrangement. And those things should be repented of because you are not God. 
and recognize that in his ordering of the body, God's actually challenging you not only to see we need each other, but to value each other differently. And that's worth thinking about, isn't it? You see, how does our society teach us to value others and our relationship with them? Well, it teaches us to value those, to judge those relationships by how it makes us feel, especially how it makes us feel about ourselves. Oh, you know, it asks whether we get as much as we give, whether they help us achieve our goals. But all the time the focus is on self. And where we're guided by that, we'll only want gifts that make us feel good, that get recognition and warm encouragement and praise that perhaps make us feel special. And we'll only want relationships with certain people who are easy, rewarding, more like us. We'll avoid the embarrassing, not take thought for how to include them. We'll think we can do without others. We may not say it, but we just never relate to them. We'll want to exclude others who might challenge us, challenge that focus on ourselves. And in doing all that, you'll frustrate God's purpose in arranging the body this body. So think honestly. Are there some here that you think you can do without? Some you're reluctant to include. What's informing your attitudes? God's valuation or the world's? You see, God does have a purpose for his arrangement. One that is for all our good. Instead, writes Paul, God's put the body together, giving greater honour to the less honourable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one part suffers, all suffer with it. If one part is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. You see, God, through his spirit, has given us different gifts, not for competition or comparison, but to knit us together. He's organised our differences to prevent division by making us rely on each other's gifts as we exercise them and by challenging us to abandon the world's valuation of what is worthwhile and embrace his valuation of who and what matters. And he has done this, made us recognise that all are needed with the gifts they have if the body is to be the body so that we have the same concern for each other. Now, you might think, yeah, that's just, you know, that's standard, you know, Christian mother pie kind of stuff. But actually, that was revolutionary in that society, <laughs> that the members would have the same concern for each other. Paul is saying that the rich are to be as concerned for the poor as they are for their rich mates, that the powerful and competent as concerned for the weak whom they could easily leave behind and who could never enhance their status in the community as concerned for them as they are for themselves. He's saying to the free and the rich that they ought to be concerned even for slaves who, had been, who they had been taught to consider as property. It's revolutionary. God says Paul has arranged the body, incorporating believers from every different, very different social backgrounds and distributing gifts as he wills to bring about a revolution in social relationships in his congregations. A revolution not by shedding blood or by demands or coercion, 
but by his divinely structured interdependence as a gracious gift of love. It's, it is, it's just wonderful that we should all have the same concern for each other. And, you know, God has arranged our body with the same purpose, that we should show the same concern for each other, practice the same revolution in our congregation because ours too is a divided society, increasingly polarised, segregated along lines, say, of age, ethnicity, education, wealth. In suburbia, we can live alongside others, often unaware and indifferent to them if they're outside our self-selected group. But God has mixed people from all different backgrounds and groups together in the church, in our church, with this purpose, that the members would have the same concern for each other. You see, we need to hear that because in a congregation our size, we can just mimic the world, still have self-selecting cliques, restrict our relating to those we feel more comfortable with, those like us, those most rewarding. But God's purpose in calling us together, in baptising us with the Spirit, is that we are different. So ask, are you different in your relating? Are you showing the same concern for believers, for believers not like you who may not belong to your social group or class? Are you showing the same concern for them as you do for those in your group? Because God's purpose is good. We should want it realised. You see, it creates a group where there's unity, which is not based on uniformity a group that can genuinely welcome and value difference in background, in ability, and see that difference as necessary, welcome, not a threat. Uh, That's a group where we can be different without being pressured into external social conformity because our unity is deeper in what believers already have in common, a commitment to Christ and sharing in the gift of his spirit. You see, in a world where acceptance is so often dependent on external conformity, often to things not in our control, beauty, sporting prowess, intellectual ability, wealth, rights, that is so good. Good for a world that speaks so much of inclusion but cannot bring it about without suppressing difference. Good for that world to see beyond the rhetoric, beyond formal politeness, a real and welcomed interdependence that witnesses to the power of Christ's work in giving the Spirit. It's good for our world. And God's purpose is good because it creates a group where we can know engaged and committed care. For we've been joined to each other. And we know the truth, don't we? If one member suffers... All the members suffer with it. (laughs) That's true of the body, isn't it? You get gout in your big toe and every part of you feels crook. Of course, you may not be the gout kind of getting people, but you get an infection in your middle ear and you'll feel crook too, just in that little, little space, right? One member suffers. All member suffers with it. And that's true of the body of Christ. We've experienced that. But the good thing is in the body, we don't suffer alone or we shouldn't. 
and being joined to each other, together we seek with urgency, don't we? Because we're suffering to alleviate that suffering. Oh, yes, and in the body we can share the joys of each other. If one member's on it, all the members rejoice with that. And isn't that good? Not to be confined or locked up just to the events of your own life, to have joy in just what happens to us, but to be able to share in the joy, the good of others. Being the body of Christ is good for our world. It's good for our brothers and sisters who can know in the body that care and it is good for us. It's where we can enjoy God's provision through each other in the gifts he's given to others, provision in those gifts for our growth, for our health, for our protection. And we need that provision. For as Paul's about to make clear to the Corinthians, none of us has it all. None is equipped to be self-sufficient. As he says to them, now you, sorry, It's just disappeared. Good. Yes. No, no. no, good. Verse 27, we were there. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members to it. You see, you're the body, Paul says, <laughs> Corinthians. He says, I've not been talking abstractly. I've been talking about you, says Paul to the Corinthians, just as actually I've been talking about you tonight and he goes on to deliberately correct their valuation of gifts and their self-sufficiency see Paul reminds them of the different kinds of gifts and then in verses 29 to 30 he makes it clear that no one has all the gifts and no gift is universal are all apostles are all prophets are all teachers right He's asking the question in Greek in a way that makes it clear that the answer to every one of those questions is no. Not all are apostles, are they? Not all speak in tongues, do they? None have it all. And so we need each other. That's reality. But this list, which is different from the list in verses 8 to 10, is also quite pointed, challenging the Corinthian valuation of gifts. Notice he starts with one, two, three. Oh, that's not just one, for example, the two, for example. No, he's talking about a real priority. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. These first three numbered gifts, the greater gifts of verse 31, have a real priority. And they are all gifts of intelligible speech. Apostles are those like Paul who are commissioned by the appearance of the risen Jesus to be witnesses to his resurrection and so to bring the gospel to the world that he's died for our sins, been buried, raised on the third day. Now we know it's a wider group than the 12 in Corinth. Paul can speak of all the apostles in chapter 15. But they're apostles because they've seen the risen Jesus. Their role is unrepeatable and foundational, not just for the Corinthians but for all believers through the ages. They're apostles and prophets who he's already mentioned and will return to in chapter 14, people who bring what appears to be a word from God by revelation to address a particular immediate need or situation. And then there are teachers, those who bring to the congregation the same deposit of faith, Christian teaching which is for all believers in all places, teaching which is historical, doctrinal, ethical, how believers are to do all that the Lord Jesus has taught. 
In saying first, second and third, Paul isn't establishing hierarchy, but he is giving priority to their role in congregational life. That priority is both historical, congregations come into being through the preaching of the apostles, and it is continuing. For congregations grow as followers of the Lord Jesus when they know and believe his word and where their life conforms to his instruction. But it's a pointed numbering, for these are the gifts which the Corinthians think less of. We've already heard their kind of estimate in Paul's words of the role of the apostles, and it would appear that they tend to downplay prophecy in favour of tongues. In this numbering, and by putting tongues last, Paul's challenging them to apply in the gifts they have present amongst them what he's already taught about the place of the weaker and the less honourable. But these verses not only apply to the Corinthians, what Paul has said about the body, these last verses are transitional, anticipating what he will say about the value of gifts in the gathering in chapter 14, where he will show them what it is, verse 31, to desire the greater gifts. That's not telling them individually to be content with the gifts they have. That would be to undo all that Paul has said about the body and the need for all the gifts and God's sovereignty in distributing them. What he's actually telling them is that as a congregation, they should value and want present amongst them those gifts that build up to be jealous for their place and function in their life. But before Paul gets there, and so that they'll understand his valuation, he says he will show them an even better, a more excellent way, the all-embracing way of love, but that's for next week. You are the body of Christ. And while different gifts might be present and valued amongst us than there were amongst the Corinthians, in another way we're not too different from the Corinthians. Lots to keep us uninvolved, reluctant to relate to others not like us, tempted to associate with and recognise only those we think can enrich us personally, to reckon some as of less worth with little or no contribution to make dispensable. Like the Corinthians, we have to hear that to be Christ's is to belong to his body here to be in relation through Christ baptising you with his spirit to all your brothers and sisters where you need what God has given you in them and they need you. And that withdrawing, excluding others, envying, looking down on, those things are all to argue with God about his choice, his arrangement, his gracious gift. And that is sin to be repented of. And it's also impoverishing, for to belong to his body is good. It speaks of the believer's enormous privilege of having been given Christ's spirit and joined to him, united to him. And it speaks of God's provision for us who are in Christ, not just in the gifts others have, but in the constant reminder being in the body is of grace that we belong not because of human worth or usefulness, but because of God's gift to us in Christ. And God makes this provision to us with a purpose, that we all be united in our diversity and be a community of genuine care 
For in the body, the well-being of each of us is inseparable from the well-being of our brothers and sisters. A community that can show to the world the goodness of belonging to the Lord Jesus. Being in the body is good. So don't let it just be a nice picture. Let it inform all your participation and relating in the congregation because it's good for you, it's good for your brothers and sisters, and it is good for our world. And it is what Christ has baptised us with his spirit for, to make us one body. So give yourself to that work of the spirit in you and amongst us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that we would hear this word tonight as addressed to us. We pray that each of us who believes in the Lord Jesus would know ourselves to have been baptised in the Spirit into one body and that we are united in our differences and we need our differences. And we pray in your mercy that we really would be the body of Christ here, that we would be united in faith and diverse and welcoming of that diversity. And we pray that we would show the same care for each other, that we wouldn't be directed by the world just to care for those like us who can and those who can enrich us, but to care for all, all, whom you have brought into the body with us. We ask this so the people would see the goodness of what you have done in Christ, of the new humanity you have given us, the new life that you bring to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.